I'm Manny Jules, the uh, First Nations Tax Commissioner from Kamloops. Kia ora. My name is Tamari Toe. I'm from Ngaitahu. Uh, we lead research in our tribe, and I'm the head of our village in Hapu in the South Island. Nice to be here. And, and hello, I'm, I'm Andre Ladresse. I'm the director of the Tulo Centre of Indigenous Economics. So I'm going to start with a question for you, Tamari. Uh, you've, uh, you've visited Canada a few times now, and you've been to a few of the reserves. And based on your visits, what do you think Naitahu students should know about First Nation culture and history and some of the issues and strategies they're, they're involved in? So what are some of your observations and, and what are you hoping that uh, students that from, from uh, the Naitahu that are attending this course should know? The most important thing, I think, is your idea of jurisdiction, which our tribe will see as sovereignty, or um, rangatiratanga is what we call it. <clears throat> in our tribe, we have a corporate a corporation, and we generate revenue. Really, we're an adjunct of the white economy, of the Pākehā economy. So we generate revenue, but it really leaks out into the wider community. What's interesting? about First Nations and and what I've seen on your reserves is that you generate and manage and regulate the economy and your reserves and lands on your own terms and that revenue goes back into your communities. That's fundamentally important because it's about regional tribal economics as opposed to corporate national revenue. Manny, I'm going to ask you a similar question. If you were explaining to Naitaho students about First Nations and some of the similarities that they might see and, and maybe they could relate to, how would you explain it? Well, I start by saying that I'm Shushwap, Shushwapmoch from the uh, interior plateau of British Columbia. And we're similar in a lot of ways. Uh, we were colonized uh, by the British. And so we have a reserve system uh, here in Canada, just the same as in New Zealand. Uh, and colonization took its its roots uh, uh, because of the British uh, system very similarly. And it was, you know, uh, done village by village. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, in there's a was a treaty that was first entered, entered entered into in the North Island and then in the South Island, and the same here in Canada. There are a number of treaties uh, right across the country. Uh, the The difference being uh, that there are pr- what we call pre-Confederation treaties, uh, even papal treaties with the Pope, uh, and then numbered treaties, and uh, there are you know a. N- I think about 50 different language families uh, right across the country. 30 of them are here in British Columbia. So even though it's a, a little bit more complex in terms of language families, it, it, we're all very similar in that uh, we've been colonized by the British. Uh, we live under a colonial system to a large degree still today because of the Indian Act. And uh, in uh, from my knowledge of of uh, New Zealand and the Maori cultures, uh, you know, you're still having to deal with a lot of the, not only the corporate uh, structures that uh, are a hangover from the colonial days, but a lot of the institutions as well that grew up uh, 
during during the early periods of colonization. And so from that perspective, we're still dealing with what I consider a systemic racism from the fact that uh, we're still not viewed as complete citizens, even though we were made citizens uh, uh, by the House of Commons in 1958. So a lot of similar issues, a lot of uh, struggles that uh, we have to work together on to resolve. And I, and my feeling, uh, I think, is very, you know, it's, as I got to know the NITO a little bit more, uh, I don't think we'll ever achieve uh, uh, the kind of freedom that, that uh, we aspire to without working together as Indigenous people. And as I mentioned before, uh, I don't view the uh, Pacific Ocean as dividing us. Uh, I see the Pacific Ocean as uniting us. It, it was interesting, Manny, because, um, Andrea, I think Manny's right. It, and I didn't answer necessarily well. I think there's a system that we're blind to because we just accept the British colonial system and the way they've configured it. Um, and it's like Santayana's saying, the last to know about the theory of water were the fish. And we just accept the colonial economic system as as a fact. But that's why I like and I enjoy this because it, it allows our students and yours just to see the differences and to step outside the world that they know, which really dominates everything. And I guess that's where the tribe's thinking is at the moment. We became a corporation in the 1990s. Um, and we've driven down a particular corporate path, but I think we're we're all quite aware of the limitations of generating wealth, and it just goes into the main economy. Where I think First Nations, you're generating wealth for your communities and people. I think you have three ideas that are quite important that our students need to understand. One is regulatory authority, and the other is fiscal authority. And the idea of title is hard for just about both groups to grasp, I would think, but it's fundamentally there and we need to deal with it. Manny, can I ask you the, the, the reverse question? So if you were thinking of what, to explaining the Naitahu to First Nation students and you wanted to say, you know, here's some of the things I think that are very important that we can learn from and, 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 and what would you, how would you, what would be some of the things you would, you would discuss? What what impresses me about uh, the Naitaho, uh, despite the fact that they've got an incredible uh, corporate structure, is the amount of wealth that they've generated for themselves uh, and what they've been able to do with the resources uh, through the, the corporate structure, particularly in dealing with language. Uh, they've brought the language back from the brink and uh, now it's so prevalent in New Zealand that it's actually changed uh, the English language. And, uh, you know, just the, the, the mere fact is when you, when you arrive in, uh, from an international fi- flight to, to Auckland, uh, you're greeted right away with Maori sayings, with uh, the, the Maori culture everywhere. Uh, at least that's, that's the perspective I've got. And the, the you know the the because of the corporation uh, structure, uh, they've been able to influence the the business culture, and uh, through a myriad of different uh, corporations, including dairy, the tourism industry, and of course uh, because of COVID, all of that's been dramatically affected. But uh, nonetheless, uh, 
you know it's it's been incredible but when i think about the history of of the the maori uh, i just am so impressed with the fact that uh, they were among the world's greatest explorers uh, traveling the the open seas settling on every inhabitable island in the pacific uh, ocean and uh, it's just a phenomenal story of exploration of using the stars of uh, you know uh, using and passing on that traditional knowledge and recognizing that uh, that those stories are indeed rooted in in the the traditional past but also using the science uh, to confirm all of that and then continuing on the the struggle that they're doing now with reasserting jurisdiction, uh, talking about the the fact that we need to continue to grow. And that's lessons that I think that uh, are inspirational to myself, uh, what they've been able to do. And also, for me, uh, one of the most important things is just the hospitality uh, that they've demonstrated time and time again to myself and and to others that uh, I've met who've been to New Zealand, how much hospitality that they were granted and the fact that they were so welcoming uh, into all of their communities. And that's that's exactly how I felt when I first visited uh, uh, the Marais, is I, I felt honored, I felt fed, uh, I felt that when you break bread uh, and you have a feast, that's the, the entree into just a, a whole new world of collaboration. And so I, I'm just, uh, you know, have been so honored in, in meeting uh, so many like-minded individuals uh, who want to pursue a better life for, for Indigenous people. Tamari, do you mind... Uh filling in a few of the gaps there with that Manny was talking about, about, you know, what is a Marai? What, what, like, so that some of our, some of our first nation students can have a better understanding of, of your culture, your, your, your communities, you know, uh, and, and your corporate structure. Sure. Our, um, in the 19th century, our people were put on reserves, very much like your reservations. Um, the one I live on is number 873. Uh, but traditionally, what we within these reserves and within our villages, even pre-traditional, uh, we have villages and the centre where people gather is the marae, which is the courtyard in front of the main meeting house. And I think you call that your log cabins, your sorry, your longhouses. So it's just the central meeting place of the chiefs and the people gather there. They have their debates. And today we still do that. The marae is the focus for our community. We we go there, we debate, we have all of our tangi, which are our funerals there, um, all big events. This year, our leading elder has been made a dame by the Crown. So in December, we'll be gathering there and um, just celebrating that. And last year, uh, Prince Charles and Camilla came to Amarai, and we, those are the places where we gather, celebrate. But actually, it's the place where we do what we want. It's ours, and it's where we carry out our culture and rituals. I, yeah, I've, I viewed it as the you know the the heart the heart of of the uh, the community. Yeah, that's what it is. Manny, can I ask you to describe a, a First Nation community, a First Nation reserve, just so that some 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 of the students, some of the Nighthouse students, have an appreciation for it? 
Well, reserves are plots of land uh, uh, that, you know, where we've inhabited, uh, as we say, since time immemorial. They're different than reservations from the United States. Uh, the, the, the reservations in the United States are uh, communities or reserves that uh, are an amalgam of a, a number of different tribes. Uh, here in Canada, those that's pretty rare to have more than one uh, community, uh, although it has happened, and it's like Burns Lake and a number of others, uh, Alert Bay, uh, where there's been a reserve, and then other uh, communities within it, uh, other peoples that have been relocated. Uh, but here in my own community of Kamloops, uh, we've lived on this, these lands for many, many thousands of years. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, some of the early uh, archaeological evidence at least goes back 6,000 years and, and even longer, but that's the archaeological evidence. And uh, so when they first started establishing Indian reserves, uh, they were reserved in our particular case where we had winter village sites. And uh, that's become our permanent home. Uh, and although we say that the land question here in British Columbia has never been formally uh, settled to our liking, uh, because we still maintain that our title it goes well beyond Indian Reserve lands, and even that's the argument with with treaty lands, and so uh, you get a whole myriad of different types of reserves right across the country. Here in British Columbia, there are over uh, 2,000 different reserves, even though there are about 200 uh, different Indian bands. And so um, in my community, we have Kamloops Indian Reserve number one through seven. Some of them are timber reserves, some of them are fishing reserves, and uh, the main reserve is, is where we live. Uh, but we are also in the position, and a lot of communities are, are doing this as well as uh, uh, whether it's on the prairies with uh, treaty land entitlement, uh, having uh, you know lands that should have been uh, part of the original uh, reserved interest uh, being added to Indian reserves, and here in Kamloops, we what we did is we purchased a ranch uh, that we maintain. Uh, uh, you know, we want to ultimately reconstitute uh, lands that were taken away from us, so it's still a very live issue. And one of the fundamental premises of, of colonization, of course, is that we don't have title in the same way that uh, the, the, the crown has title. And so uh, when you challenge the crown to its title, uh, you don't argue about whether or not the crown has title. Uh, one of the Im imbalances, if you will, is that we have to, as indigenous people uh, who who want to assert our title have to have to prove that we have title uh, through uh, historical records and uh, through oral tradition whereas uh, on the opposite side uh, if you will uh, on the, the federal and provincial crown they don't have to argue that because it's a given that they have title and so they, they, that goes right back to uh, what I consider uh, systemic racism in the country is that uh, because of colonization, uh, you know, we have to begin to resolve these issues 
and ultimately the only way to resolve them is through our own institutional development. And I think that's where we are, Andre. New Zealand is like Canada. We have a number of reserves, forest reserves, fishing reserves, villages, which is which are different from the United States. I, I think the difference is a reservation is simply a big plot of land set aside. Um, we started off as a reservation. Then when we started to get title and allocations to individual owners, it became a reserve specific to our people. That's detail. That's too far down the rabbit hole, though. Tamari, mm-hmm. can can you explain what is the role of the uh, Maori Land Court? <laughs> well, I think the Maori Land Court is just a, a place of frustration for our people. It's really designed by the Crown to, um, even though it's got the term Maori Land Court, it's not for Maori. <laughs> It's the Crown's um, system of codifying, regulating, and just about stopping anything from happening on Māori land. So uh, it's really interesting. In New Zealand, everyone says we need one law for everyone. But quite frankly, if you had um, Māori land law governing all of Pākehā land, they wouldn't tolerate it. So the Māori land court was there, designed um, by the Crown to regulate control just about everything on on our reserves and in the end it was fundamentally designed to um to oversee the transfer of our remaining lands into parkier ownership that's the fundamental point the argument is it changed in 1994 but um really the mighty land court is it's an inherited bastard child of the crown that stops development on mighty land it's quite appalling Manny, what would you see a parallel in Canada? Uh, Well, right now there's, you know, a specific claims tribunal, and I helped uh, set that up uh, through federal legislation. Uh, But one of the the fundamental things about it is the whole question that underlines all of our discussions, uh, at least a large portion of our discussions with the federal and provincial government, and that's contingent liability. At any given point, uh, in Canada, when Cabinet uh, sits to make a decision about Indigenous people, uh, there's li- a question of liability. And so when the specific claims tribunal uh, begins to deal with the land matter, uh, it isn't binding on the Crown in anything exceeding about $100 million. And so, uh, and the reason for that is because of uh, contingent liability. If you make one, if you know, if you make one decision, that that's really a billion-dollar, uh, multi-billion-dollar potentially a decision that that a claims tribunal would would make, and so that's something that's similar. And then, of course, you've got the standard courts uh, that's come up with a number of uh, court cases since we were able to even have lawyers, and that's been only in since the nineteen sixties. Uh, uh, it was banned. Uh, uh, for uh, indigenous people or Indian people to to have lawyers and to have self tax uh, going back to the 1920s, and so there were about you know seven generations where we couldn't exercise that jurisdiction or that ability that other Canadians took for granted, and so because of recent court cases, it's it's changed uh, an awful lot in in terms of consultation. 
But the underlying issue still is uh, that we have a lodial, we haven't affected what's called a lodial title. Uh, what we have affected is is that we have a usufructory right uh, inland, which is, as my good friend Mal Bevan would always talk about, it's similar to grizzly bear rights. We have a right to to hunt, we have a right to pick berries, uh, but if we leave the the reservation, then we could be shot or in, in confined. And so uh, when we have a usufructory right, it still means that the crown owns the land and we only have the use and benefit of land, which is really the the establishment of of Indian reserves. I think, um, Andre, that's pretty much the case here. What what I wanted to say is the original term for the Māori land court here, its term's reference was to extinguish native title. And that says it pretty much what the purpose was um, and what they allocated were particular rights which are variations really of user rights that many talks about but it's no real substantive right of title which is what i admire about first nations and we're working on at the moment there there is an interesting case i think our students need to know um, our representative our lawyer that we're working with at the moment is chris finlayson he was the Attorney General and Minister uh, for the Crown in the previous government. Now, what he did up in the Tuhoi country uh, on their settlement, he removed Crown title. And the next thing he did in the schedule of the Act, and I'll put it up for the class, is he removed set pieces of basic legislation that apply to all lands in New Zealand. They were, were removed off the Tuhoi settlement. The other one that he did before that was the idea of the river having its own identity. Um, but you can see the gradual process from the river having its own identity, which is a really a way of kicking the idea of touch, title to touch. By the last settlement that Chris did, um, the Tuhoi people, crown title was removed. And I think the basic assumption of that is once crown title is removed, the basic idea of tribal title um, is self-evident, which is quite an interesting leap in thinking for New Zealand. Yeah, we our cases uh, go back to, uh, I guess the first uh, big one was uh, in about 1972, and uh, that opened the door and the floodgates for Canada dealing with uh, the so-called land question here in, in Canada. Up until that point, they were in complete denial that there was any outstanding issues that they needed to deal with, uh, with First Nations. And this was after the Trudeau, the elder, uh, enacted his white paper policy, which was really a, a policy of, of uh, uh, implementing, uh, you know, getting getting rid of the Indian Act, getting rid of uh, what they called, you know, citizens plus kind of arguments, and. Uh, uh, since then, there's been a number of court cases that have fundamentally changed uh, how dialogue happens between ourselves and the Crown. And most recently, there was a, a, an incredible case that came out of the United States called the McGirt case, and that involved the Creek uh, uh, tribe in Oklahoma. And uh, one of the things that uh, is interesting about that uh, particular case is that uh, they have uh, their title would survive uh, any kind of interest, including fee simple interest, on on their on their tribal lands, and a lot of these are 
are a direct result of of agreements that they had. Uh, uh, of course, the Creek were one of the five civilized tribes. Uh, but having said that, uh, it's it's something that we're studying, and it's something that I believe uh, has application for all of in, all of us, uh, including the Maori, including us here in Canada, and and in particular the United States. Can I ask you to a uh... I'll ask you. I'll ask you, Tamari, first. Mm-hmm. What do you hope the students will learn in this class? What's you know, and, and from each other? Well, it's really been quite interesting watching this because listening to many, um, again, it's, it's things you don't appreciate about your own status and where you are in in the world. So, I guess what I want our students to learn from First Nations is is how you regulate and establish economic institutions to run your own economy. Now, um, what's not understood here is how to do that, because actually we have legislation within our settlement that virtually says the tribe has authority. It's virtually there in the settlement. The other thing we have in our settlement is where the Crown is obliged to cooperate with us, and that's just not consultation and being nice. They're actually obliged to cooperate. And we're putting in mechanisms, but I guess the thing is, it's um, what we don't know how to do is what you've done, which is how to build the institutions to regulate and have some sort of authority over yourselves, which I think you call op- occupying the grey space. Um, how do we manage the multipliers, the leakage of our money, and how do we manage rates, all those, sorry, land tax, goods and services tax for the benefit of the community? We have no idea about that. Um, our money just leaks out into the community. What I did notice and what Manny's indicated to us is, uh, and this is the thing that's going on in New Zealand right at this moment, a cousin of mine has just offered my wife and I entry into what you call a club in Christchurch. Do you have them in Canada? Oh, yeah, we've got clubs. This is probably one of those old established clubs in Christchurch. and. 40 years ago, our people had to walk through the back door, you know, to get entry. Um, but we're going through the front door now. And what's really quite interesting is the welcoming of our people and, their bike, and really of our culture. Um, New Zealand's changed fundamentally. And as Manny spoke about, the language and the identity of Christchurch in New Zealand is changing because we understand we're in the Pacific. We're not in the United Kingdom anymore. Um, and that's been a good thing to appreciate and realize. Plus, I guess what Naitahu don't understand is the cash that flows around our tribe and how we don't manage it. It's uh, it's almost as if we have far too much and we don't know what to do with it. Uh, and we need to regulate it and control because the recent COVID crisis has brought our tribal corporation, our finances down to its knees. Now, what that really means is we have to develop our communities, our reserves and our people in the regions so that the multiplier that you guys do so well is there. And it just doesn't go straight to the crown pockets and to the tax system that they have. And we can create a world that's our own. That's what I hope we can learn and our students can learn from First Nations. Andre? Manny, same question to you. What are, what are you hoping that all the students get out of this class? Well, I think that one is it's you know recognizing that really it's it's a privilege to to get to know uh, uh, other cultures 
and particularly other cultures that are undertaking the same kind of rebuilding and reconstituting of our cultures as, as the Maori and the, the First Nations here in Canada. And, and I think that that, you know, just getting to know individuals, getting to know the, the issues and how similar they are, uh, getting to know people on a, on a personal basis. And I'm hoping that that will really create a, a, a synergy that will go beyond uh, just the class, but really begin to unite uh, communities and really begin to unite uh, an intellectual process, which will see us uh, pursuing our, our uh, business freedom, our cultural freedom uh, along the, the path that will be united. Uh, you know, as I learned uh, from my uncle a long time ago, is that uh, we cannot, you know, hope to achieve uh, the kinds of freedom on our own, but we have to reach out and work with ind- other indigenous people. And this is going to be a, a first and, and major step along that uh, that direction. And it also demonstrates clearly uh, in, in that little uh, lapel pin uh, from the ledger art that I did, you know, the, the, the Pacific uh, unites us. Uh, we have, you know, the, the waka and the canoe. Uh, we're going to be paddling that together. Uh, we have the, the North Star, which is a constant for us here in the Northern Hemisphere and in the South, uh, the Southern Cross. And those are, are part of the heavens. Those are part of uh, the cosmos that all of us understand is that uh, the cosmos are really, we're from the cosmos and our ancestors are in the cosmos. And so it's, it's just an, a, a new chapter uh, that I hope opens up uh, a new way of thinking about who we are, where we are, and where we hope to, to end up. And uh, that has to happen with other Indigenous people. And this is a, an experiment that I, I think is going to be opening up doors and opening up our communities to one another for many generations to come. That's That's my hope. I just have one more question for both of you. In the last six months, every country in the world has been part of a global pandemic. And how has this impacted, I'm going to start with you, Tamari, how has this impacted the Naitahu communities and and the Naitahu Corporation? It's really been, first of all, I think everyone loved the lockdown because it was a good time for reflection. I think what it made us do in our village is realize how exposed we are and how we need to refocus on our people. Now, what I mean by that is um, we all know the first off the ranks and the unemployed ranks are our people. It's just so clear. And the other thing we've noticed from our research is there's going to be a two-year gap. And the uptake in employment, the next round, will be in a certain skill sector. So what our tribe's got is a two-year gap to retrain our people in micro-credentials and other courses. What's also clear is uh, the Crown doesn't really care. And in terms of health and other institutional, health institutions, economic institutions on our reserves, we need to develop them. Uh, because it's really quite interesting. The whole of the country's in lockdown. No one cared about our villages. It actually took our community in the north and the urban Māori communities to, to, to cooperate and get our own doctors to start testing our people, which we did. And it was a good thing. But one of the things I learned from your 
your theory, Andre, and the manual that you have is when it comes to switching costs, we do it better. And I know we can do things cheaper. Um, and it, I bet you First Nations have had this experience too. When our people worked in their gangs, you know, their labouring gangs, contract gangs, I know our people were always better and faster than the Pākehā. And I just think we, when we're focused properly, we can do it better, faster, cheaper. And the switching costs are much better. And I think that's where the tribe's going to go. Regional development is where we go. The other thing is we lost a huge amount of, well, I shouldn't say huge, but um, what people don't understand we'll do in the course is a lot of our wealth comes off treaty, treaty political leverage. And um, we're going to make much better use of that in the future. I think that's all I need to say at the moment, Andre. Andy, this is the same question to you. Uh, well, I've spent a lot of the uh, the COVID-19 lockdown just myself reflecting and realizing how many other <clears throat> pandemics uh, we've lived through, particularly the smallpox epidemics here in British Columbia, and how that informed uh, my ancestors in in 1910 with their memorial to Sir Wilfrid Laurier and their other statement to, to Oliver, uh, trying to reconcile our rights within the Canadian Federation, and how prevalent that still is today. And it's also exposed, like uh, Tamari was talking about, the complete dependence that we have on the federal and provincial governments for health care. And when I started reading a lot of the historic documents, we were asking for that in 1910. We wanted our own doctors and we wanted our own education systems. And a lot of that just goes right back to uh, the previous pandemics we've had. And it isn't just smallpox, it's measles, it's uh, tuberculosis, uh, all of the other epidemics that our people have lived through. And uh, it's really also proven the point that because we've lived through those past uh, epidemics that uh, that we've got it within us uh, to live through others. And believe me, uh, there will be other pandemics in the future. And this is one of the things that I think that our people, and particularly through this class, have got to begin to prepare for, is rebuilding an economy that we're not legislated out of but an integral part of, and also uh, creating our own institutions so that we'll be able to better look after ourselves because we can prioritize uh, what needs to be done within our communities better than any other level of government. Uh, and, and that's, you know, what, what really has saved a lot of communities is just the mere fact of them being able to shut down and lock out others that's saved uh, entire communities uh, in the United States and here in Canada. And unfortunately, there's been, you know, when you, you have to look no further than the Navajo uh, reservation to see the infection rates uh, far exceed uh, uh, their, their surrounding communities. And that's because of the complete lack of, of health care, complete lack of, of, uh, of, of an economy that they can depend on. As soon as the pandemic hit, that shut down casinos. Uh, here in British Columbia, uh, there was a revenue sharing agreement uh, for for casinos with First Nation communities, and of course, that's just gone up in smoke. Uh, and you know, so 
now all governments, uh, because of the in- incredible amount of debt that's been created over this last six months and for however long the pandemic will be until there's a, a vaccine, uh, will only continue to, to grow. And this gives us an opportunity to really begin to work together and lobby for our rightful place within uh, the, these uh, uh, you know our respective countries uh, so that we can one look after ourselves prioritize uh, how you know dollars that are taken out of our communities can be better served uh, by by making sure that it comes back to our community so that we prevent the kind of leakage that takes place now we have to begin to completely rebuild uh, this dependence uh, model uh, so that we can have truly dynamic economies. And that really begins to usher in a new way of thinking, uh, which I think is, is, you know, previously has not been as prevalent as it should be. And that's, the, you know, the, the thinking that we can do this. We've got the ability, we've got the intellectual uh, capabilities to do this. And one of the things I was mentioning to Tamari before the, the, the podcast was uh, the, the really the Peruvian potato and how that had an impact in in Maoridom, uh with the introduction of the Peruvian potato in New Zealand and how the Maori adapted it and through the potato blights in, in New Zealand it was able to survive and that potato even though it's simple uh, is worth has been worth more in the world than all of the gold and all of the silver that's been exploited from North and Central and South America. It's probably been the most successful crop, uh, really, uh, in the history of of uh, humankind. And so that's the kind of technology that that we can harness. Uh, that's the kind of abilities that our people have demonstrated over and over again. That if we have, and we have just as much intellectual capability as anybody else, but if we have uh, the ability to be able to govern ourselves, have our own institutions, we're going to unleash a new way of approaching a lot of the issues that uh, for too long we've been dependent on somebody else to make those decisions for us. And so I, this, this course is going to be a, a harbinger of, of what our potential an untapped potential uh, can be. Wow. <laughs> this is going to be one of those, exactly as Manny just said, one of those harbingers of, of, of good things to come. I just want to thank you both for your time. And, uh, oh.